Welcome fellow pilots and other podcast listeners to another episode of the Alaska Pilots Podcast. I'm your host, Strategic Communications Chairman, Captain David Campbell. Today I've got with me Will McQuillan, your MEC Chairman, Chris Gruner, your Negotiating Committee Chairman, and Ronan O'Donohue, our Strategic Planning Committee Chairman. Thanks for joining me, you guys. Well, I'm certainly not going to bury the lead on this podcast episode. I'm sure most, if not everyone listening, knows that last week the MEC unanimously voted to authorize a strike authorization ballot. We're going to spend a lot of time today talking about why that decision was made, why we believe it's important to do it now, what it is and what it isn't, and what will happen next. But before we get into that, this is the first podcast episode we've done since the very successful informational picketing on April 1st, which marked the second anniversary of our contract's amendable date and nearly three years of negotiating a new contract. And I want to talk about that. And I want to start with just a lot of thank yous that that are involved in that. There was a huge, huge lift by everyone involved. And that certainly includes the ALPA staff. It includes multiple MEC uh, folks, multiple pilots, um, both in the volunteer structure and uh, otherwise. And of course, the overwhelming turnout of all of our pilots. So thank you to all of those folks. And But I, I want to make a, a special call out to you, Ronan. And I, Ronan, I know that you don't do this work for thanks or praise or even recognition. So if you'll allow me, uh, I, I do want to highlight you because you played a huge role in this. And I, I don't know that people really understand how significant that was, not the least of which was it was your idea to do the thing in the first place. And I, some of our folks remember years ago, we did a, a huge um, picket for the shareholders meeting at the Museum of Flight. And that was that was a huge undertaking. So when you brought this up to me that, that uh, you thought we should do a all-base picket simultaneously, I thought to myself, and, and I, I said to you, I'm sure you'll remember, it was like, that's a big deal. <laughs> that is going to be a huge thing to pull off. And, um, and you know, you were right to do it. And, and we all recognize that right away. But I, I don't think that, you know, without you, it I don't know that it would have happened, or, or at least it was your idea to make it happen. And the work that you did behind the scenes to pull it off, there's just so many things that people don't really recognize or understand. So thank you for, for doing that. And hopefully I haven't embarrassed you too much. <laughs> no, thanks, David. I appreciate it very much. It was a, it was a massive lift, but I think it was a, a worthy lift. It was a, We needed to get out there and demonstrate. And I'm sure just like the rest of you guys, we hear from pilots all the time, you know, and they wanted to get out there. They wanted to, to show that, um, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but you know, they wanted to show that it's them. They wanted the faces behind the words. They wanted people really felt the need to to be heard. And it, it was, it was historic. It was record-breaking. It's the largest picket in ALPA history. And I mean, I'm very proud. I'm also very grateful to have a great team to work with. So thanks for your kind words, but you and you had no small part in it either. You were right there with us. And um, I'm glad that it worked out the way it did. So thank you. Yeah. And, and I will jump on something that just got said too, about this being an organically driven effort, because I think that there was an effort by uh, management to somehow uh, 
characterize this as being nationally driven, nationally constructed, and something that was put together and people were forced to attend. And it could be no further from the truth than that. Just from my end, the level of enthusiasm from other chairmen, including obviously other unions that jumped on this and were eager to participate. Um, this is organic. I mean, this reflects entirely where the pilot group is. And I know we'll get into that here in a little bit about the, the level of frustration that the pilots feel trying to convey the message that legitimately this is, you know, their level of frustration, their priorities that are being articulated and their level of concern that was reflected in that display of solidarity. It was an amazing event. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. On that point, Will, I flew on um, over the weekend, a couple of days after the strike authorization vote was authorized by the MEC. And it was a very common thread or theme that I was hearing from the pilots that I was talking to. And one specific pilot actually brought it up and everybody else agreed with him that he was getting tired of seeing all of these communications from the company, either through the media or internally, that the union was doing this, that the pilots union was asking for X, Y, and Z, or, you know, they, they would refer to the union almost like it wasn't the pilots. And that really was distasteful in his opinion. He felt like it was you know, not a good representation of what his feelings were and what his desires were and that the union is us. So, you know, that narrative needs to get corrected. Yeah, that's a good point. And the airline pilots union in particular is really built bottom up. And I mean, that's that's true of most unions, but I think a lot of effort was built into the structure of how we organize ourselves. And so it it really, that's exactly right. This the, the goals that Chris and his negotiating team are, are working towards in the negotiating room are driven by the pilots. We, we know that clearly because we communicate with them a lot. Uh, it's the pilots who elect the representatives who empower Chris and, and give him his, his goals and his marching orders. And it all gets that, that loop gets closed because uh, ultimately a tentative agreement goes back to the pilots to decide whether they'll vote for it or not. So it's, it, you're, you're right. It's very pilot driven. Yeah. Right. And it's a level of disconnect, I think, that exists with this management team. I mean, in private conversations, we've heard it certainly with the MEC, too, where they castigate us for lathering up the pilots. That is simply not the truth, that somehow if we didn't exist and we were quiet and we sat on our hands, and we never calmed a single thing in in the world that the pilots would have a much more set of diminished expectations. I hear it constantly. It's a very popular narrative on the management side. You know, and one of the things I really enjoy about working with your elected representatives is just the way they address your issues and when we're meeting. So last week, again, we spent a lot of time making sure the negotiating committee, me, Rob, and Drew are, are staying on track. And just the thoughtfulness that your reps put behind making sure they get your priorities right is just evident in everything that they do. It comes through in the direction they give us, and then hopefully it's evident out on the line. And I think we see that because when you have so many people show up to a picket, that's showing that that ground up, that grassroots effort is working. When you see people wearing their Alpa lanyards, that means it's working. So again, I, I say this to new higher classes, but... You know, uh, we need to earn uh, you wearing your Alpa lanyard, for you wearing your pins, for you to show up to these events. And we want to make sure that's reflective of our ability to reflect your voice. And if that's not happening, please, we want to hear from you. So go talk to your reps, let them know what we could be doing better. And that's the way this organization works. 
Yeah, I think obviously the um, the priorities articulated at the table. We've got fresh polling data, and three years they just haven't changed. Things have not materially changed in any way, shape, or form in terms of the goals. And you know, I'll reiterate something that you just said there. That obviously nothing about moving forward with a strike authorization vote was an easy decision, nor was it made emotionally. It was a very pragmatic decision. It followed several days of intense debate and evaluation about where we are in the negotiating process. So while we're still more or less on the topic of the picket, Chris, let us know what impact that had from from your perspective. I think you know people are curious about that. Well, so you met with the company and the mediator the following week. How did that go? Well, I think you guys all saw it with the email that the company sent out before negotiations even began. So they just doubled down and pushed harder on trying to sell their narrative instead of acknowledge yours. So the tone we had was just the company pushing their expectations, continuing to try to push yours to the side, and spent a lot of the time uh, at the table just reflecting their calm and not your expectations. So you guys have made it clear to us that what we put across the table reflects what you expect moving forward. And that's what we then explained to the company and what we told them is needed in order to move forward. And, and to be clear, what that means is not what we saw, which was a philosophical response and a discussion point as opposed to bringing solutions and actual uh, you know, proposals, which is what they were charged to do in that, uh, that mediation session, which was what was so frustrating is that not only did they try to talk the pilots to death prior to negotiations in you know, the mediated session, but also the same thing that was the approach they brought, even though they'd been tasked with clearly bringing a response to our scope proposal. Yeah. And, you know, when you look at the issues that you guys are looking at, you know, the job security, quality of life, those things being you know, predominant. These are issues that have been solved or are being solved at other carriers, not because pilots look at an arbitrary bar and they want to go reach it, but it's issues that pilots genuinely care about and that other management teams have worked diligently to solve. And so I know there's some concern about when our next meeting is going to be. We've heard a lot of that stuff. And frankly, just as of today, as we're recording this podcast, I haven't heard anything back yet from the mediator. We're still waiting, but that doesn't preclude us from meeting with the company. But I also want to remind everybody that until Alaska management agrees to address concerns that pilots care about, there's no amount of meetings that are going to move this negotiation forward. So there really has to be that acknowledgement from the company that your concerns are their concerns. And I think that's what you see from successful management groups. And, you know, even when you're looking at or listening to earnings calls from other companies, there's a different way they talk about their relationship with pilots. And that needs to change here. Yeah, amen to that. I think it's just so frustrating to to hear this articulation constantly that industry-proven solutions that we're seeking simply can't be put into place here because it places the company at a competitive disadvantage in some fashion. I, I don't understand how competing on a level playing field is somehow going to harm this company. Right. Taking care of your pilot should be part of a successful business plan, right? Not something that's separate from it or holding whatever your perceived uh, model of success is. Right. And con from, yeah, yeah exactly. And, and constantly trying to simply say that, well, I'm sorry, this is as far as we can go. That doesn't work that way when the industry bar is so different. You know, it's not that we're cherry picking, as we have said so many times, Chris, we're legitimately looking at what the pilots have said to us problems that they articulate that need to be solved 
that fall under the quality of life banner or job security banner. They're genuine problems. Problems, we bring solutions. And that's the way that negotiations should work. And if you don't like the solution that's proffered at the table, bring your own solution. Don't just talk us to death about why you can't or won't move forward in that area. And there's it's just, uh, again, a lot of missed opportunities over the years to take care of issues along the way. And like we said before, they've piled up. So when it looks like a big lift, it is at this point. I mean, just, you know, a small example, pay again, we know pay will get there, but you look after cashier and how this company handled pay versus you look at a company like American who increased pay because they knew that that's what they needed to take care of at that moment. There are opportunities to take care of things that needed to happen in the moment years ago. And none of these things have happened. So that's why we are where we are. Yeah. And even in this last week, I'm incandescently jealous of some of the other chairmen that have management groups that are willing to work with them on an ad hoc basis to deal with the issues that come up. You know, Delta obviously has made some forward progress outside of Section 6. Um, and I don't know how much of this can be made public, but I'll just say that Jason's had some good wins here because he's had a willing, engaged management team that recognizes this as a problem and moves forward to a mutually agreed to solution. And I want to be clear, that's what we're working towards. And that requires trust. And part of that trust is going to be solving these big issues and building a structure again that we can then work off of together. Um, so when you have something like that, it's so much easier to solve smaller issues as you go along. But right now, there's so many big issues that are just not moving in a positive direction, that it really makes things difficult. But we are committed to get into a place where this will be a stronger, better company and a place where pilots are proud to work and come to. Well, you know, I've been sitting here biting my lip here for the last like five minutes listening to you guys because I am so sick and tired of this mantra of we need you to work at a discount. Do they do that with Boeing? Do they go to Boeing and say, okay, we need you to give us 737s cheaper than everybody else, otherwise it will jeopardize our business model. They just got to knock it off. It's 2022. You're competing against a market now. You're not competing against your individual pilot group. Pilots are, are leaving. Pilots are going to other airlines. They don't have to sit here and be told they need to work at a discount. If they, if they really need us to work at a discount, I would highly recommend that they revisit their business model. And, you know, I, I think this conversation leads very well into our next topic, which is we've been negotiating for just about three years. We've done it in multiple venues, in direct negotiations, in private mediation, now with the uh, help of the National Mediation Board. And in all of those cases and in all of that time, management hasn't moved off of that philosophical position that they need us to work at a discount, irrespective of what's happening in the industry and irrespective of the ability they have to make improvements to our contract. They're just locked into that position. So, we move on to the next step. And as you saw in last week's vote, we believe that is a strike authorization ballot. So let's talk about that. Okay, I guess I'll set the foundation that, you know, simply put, the MEC, based on everything we just talked about, if receiving detailed updates from the negotiating committee, you know, from ENFA and from our advisors, all of our uh, national and local advisors, came to the somber conclusion that the path forward really does involve us preparing for the possibility of self-help. And that's unfortunate, but it's, a, it's an obvious and a very necessary next step. Right. And so let's talk about, just in case folks are, are not clear, let me talk about those steps in the RLA process and where this strike authorization ballot fits in. 
Um, and I, I've attached in the show notes a diagram of the, the flow chart, if you will, of the Section 6 process. And so if you want, you can follow along. But right now, we are where the orange circle indicates in mediated negotiations. And those will continue for some period of time. And at some point, the mediator may decide that no further work will bring the parties any closer together. Now, it doesn't have to happen that way. And often in the National Mediation Board negotiations, it doesn't. And the parties are able to reach an agreement in that phase. But um, whether that happens with us has yet to be seen. So if an impasse is declared by the National Mediation Board, they will move on to the next phase, which I will tell you, requires a uh, proffer of arbitration, which I won't speak for the MEC, but I have a, a very high degree of confidence that they will reject that immediately. And, and I will stress, too, that there is no way that we would ever be forced into an arbitration. That's up to us. So if either party rejects that proffer of arbitration, you move on to a 30-day cooling-off period which is another time that could be spent with intensive negotiations and hopefully an agreement is reached during that 30-day cooling off period. But if it doesn't, it moves on to the next phase, which is self-help, which for us would mean a strike and for the company could mean a lockout or a changing of the working conditions or pay rates. So before we got to a strike, we have to authorize the strike. And so that's what the strike authorization ballot is. And so let's talk about what it is and, and what it isn't. Yeah, and, and David, I think that's a good description of kind of where we are. And you kind of uh, mentioned something along the way there before we move into kind of nuts and bolts of the strike authorization vote here with Ronan. It struck me that when you, you talk about both parties being at an impasse, the company in its very own words, I mean, in John Ladner's communication to the pilot group, used that word, our current impasse is related to, and you know, he also said that it's difficult to make further forward progress. I mean, the company itself is implying that we're at an impasse, which leads us to this logical stage of, of where we are. That's right, Will. And to be clear, we are not on strike. And additionally, the unanimous vote in favor of a strike authorization ballot from the MEC also does not actually authorize a strike. So Ronan, would you explain what that vote did do. Yeah, absolutely. So you give a little bit of a background on it. You know, we, we, we have a strategic plan that we've adhered to. And that that plan has actually been pretty much, we called all, a lot of this stuff about a year ago is where we laid out all of these things out. And a strike authorization vote, essentially what that is, is it gives us, as you, as you pretty much detail, I won't go into a whole lot more than that, but it gives the MEC the ability to call for a strike if authorized by its membership at the appropriate time in the RLA process. So it's not something that we we just huck out there just because, just for fun. It's genuinely a very serious thing. And it's something that, you know, we, we debated at length last week during the meeting. There was uh, three different days that, you know, I stood in front of the body with Drew Coyle and answered a lot of the questions, that, very thoughtful questions, actually, by the representatives you know, your representatives. And um, we got to the place on Thursday afternoon where we felt, okay, it was appropriate to make this call and to uh, call call the question. And it was voted on unanimously. So um, from next steps, where it goes from here is essentially 
you know, we opened the ballot on the morning of May 9th and at 10 a.m. Eastern, and it closes at 10 a.m. Eastern on May 25th. And the pilots will know the results of it at that point too. It's very, very important. I cannot stress this enough to you how 100% of the pilot group that's eligible to vote, and actually that's another issue. I'll, I'll just stop there real quick. You, you've, if you're an active member in good standing, you will be eligible to vote. So probationary pilots are not, um, non-members are not. Uh, just, you know, you, you can tell very easily if you go to your ALPA website, go to the ALPA website, look at your profile, and it will tell you right there whether or not you're eligible to vote. But anybody who is eligible to vote, it is crucial that we get a 100% participation and you know, we really want a 100% yes vote on this because this is your opportunity to tell management exactly how you feel and to make sure that they understand that we're not messing around here. We are going to make sure that we get the contract we deserve. So um, the balloting process itself, it's carried out um, in coordination with ALPA's voting procedures, and that'll be done electronically. Um, so that will, again, will get you information as it gets closer in, but you should get emails too. So make sure that you're watching for this stuff as it gets close to May 9th, that you're, uh, you, you, you see that and contact your ramps instantly if there's something going, if you haven't seen it or something's not, not right or you can't get into your website, etc. There is links to get in there. So if you haven't been in that website, please make sure that you can get in now um, so we can get those, those issues ironed out. The big thing that we want to make sure that you folks know is that this is a um, process that we take very, very seriously. We are going to get out there over the next month, month and a half. There'll be a tremendous amount of face-to-face -face interactions that you'll see from the MEC and your local representatives. For example, I'm going to be doing one in Los Angeles on May 5th. And you'll have various members from your MEC but mostly you'll find your LEC representatives, your local council reps will be getting out there and answering questions for you. So you'll see different sorts of airport coffee sets. You may see some barbecues going on in people's houses. There's a lot of, there's going to be a lot of um, reach outs over the next four weeks, five weeks to make sure that you folks are getting your, your questions answered. Also, we recognize that it's a big decision. It's not just a pilot's decision. This is a, a family decision. So you will also see some um, family outreach committee um, reach outs as well over the next month. And uh, you'll see multiple opportunities for the Zoom methods as well of communicating. But if, you're, if your spouse is not a member of the FONE page on, the, on Facebook, I would highly recommend that you get involved with that. Or if you go to the Outreach and Negotiations Education Committee, they have a direct link there where you can um, join up and, and sign up for anything there that you'd like to do. So... Please be involved, stay involved. If you can't make any of these meetings, um, make phone calls, call your reps. Just make sure you're talking, having these conversations in the flight deck. Make sure you're talking to your fellow pilots, your classmates, et cetera, to get out there and get this vote done. So, you know, but thanks, David. I appreciate you pitching to me there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And let me just emphasize a couple of those points. The participation is a big one. It It's really important that you show up to this in the same way that you showed up to the informational picket. That sent a really strong message. We had a huge turnout. Essentially, everyone who wasn't working was out on that picket line. It told everybody that this was pilot-driven, that it was important to pilots, that it mattered. And this strike authorization vote is the same way. This sends a, a very similar message, and it is an important step in the process. 
The other thing I want to emphasize is I know there's a lot of pilot spouses who listen to this podcast, and I, I want to speak directly to you in a way because this having been on strike myself uh, years ago, I know that this impacts everyone in the household. And it's important that everyone understands why we're doing it, what's at stake, and what it takes to be successful. So if you are a spouse or any other family member or part of the support structure of a pilot, this this involves you too. So feel free to get involved, ask those questions, and join us. Yeah, and I'll add one more thing that he that he mentioned as well, which was, uh, you know, alaskapilots.org. If you take a look at that site, for those of us, and every one of us this applies to, are getting questions continually from friends, family, and we can certainly put our own personal um, experiences into play in those conversations. But alaskapilots.org has a really good summary of the situation, the timeline, everything. It's one-stop shopping for anybody who has questions especially, you know, your family and acquaintances who are kind of wondering about uh, what they're hearing in the media and some of the, the other rhetoric that the, the company may have put out. I think this lays a very good, clean case for the history where we are and why we're here. Yeah, and certainly from the feedback I've gotten over the weekend, Will, since the vote was taken, um, pilots are there. They're definitely there and they're ready. And families too, frankly. It's, um, I've talked to several spouses and you know, I've gotten a tremendous amount of support um, through texts and phone calls. Um, so I, I, I think it's it's a necessary step. It is the next step in the RLA process, and it is a necessary step, and we have to keep moving. Until, these, until the pilots get the contract they deserve, we have to keep moving. There's just no choice here. Thanks, Ronan. And would you parse out what it means when the vote comes in? Does that mean we would be on strike then? And I mean, I know it doesn't, but can you oh, explain no. what that does mean? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Um, so basically what that does come back, it gives it gives the MEC the authorization to call for a strike at the appropriate time that the RLA allows. So it does not mean we are on strike. It does not mean that we are going to, in one week from now, or one week from the vote, declare that we're going on strike. We can't do that. We have to let Chris and his team continue the process with the NMB, and that still can be lengthy. Um, it can run for a couple of months. It can run for several months. And what has to happen is basically before we would actually get released to strike, we have to get to a point where it is an impasse and there'll be an arbitration offered by the National Mediation Board. And if either party refuses the arbitration, it is non-binding. So that releases you then into the 30-day cool-off period. And in the 30-day cooling-off period, you know, there's and, and Chris can speak to this better than I can, I mean, there's always an opportunity for um, the parties to meet and to have conversations. But at the end of the 30-day cooling off period, at that point, then the National Mediation Board will release you to strike. And uh, that's that's basically where it happens. So, I mean, this is it's still a lengthy process. There's still a lot of steps that you have to go through. And hopefully, you know, I mean, the goal here, you know, I, I, I want to see this company succeed. You know, the goal here is not to go on strike. So we do not have a desire to get this yes authorization and then to get to that point, that is absolutely not where we want to go. Where we want to go is a ratified TA for this pilot group. And uh, this is just something to um, to have available to us should we hit that need. Ronan, I'm sure our pilots want to help out, do anything they can. What is the very best way they can be of help? 
That's a really, really good question. And obviously the big thing that jumps out at me right now and, and the one thing that everybody can do is polls open on May 9th. Absolutely vote, please. You've got to do that. We've got to get a big, big participation. We already talked about this, David, but 100% participation and 100% yes vote is, is, is our goal right now. And that's what we really need to get done. The other thing I would ask you to do, and we've been asking you for months, and the pilots have done a great job, is to make sure that you stay informed, read your any communications that are coming out from your MEC or from your local LECs. Um, make sure that you attend any of the events that we have, especially while this vote is open. It's a great opportunity for you to get your questions answered at coffee sits or any other events that will be set up by your local councils. What I really, really want to stress is please do not take matters into your own hands. We have a plan. We're sticking to that plan. It's a perfectly legal way of getting this thing done and getting it across the line. The last thing we need is for anybody to get themselves in trouble. So please, when you go to work, be professional, do your job and do it well. And uh, just just trust that the process will work. So thanks, David. That's a great question. Yeah, absolutely. And Chris, I'm Turn it back to you for a second. Ronan and I talked about a TA. For those who may not know what that is, could you explain it? Yeah, it's a, a tentative agreement. So again, any agreement that the union comes to, first the negotiating committee will make the determination that it meets the expectation of the pilots, then it will go through the MEC. And then after that, a tentative agreement does not become a contract until it's ratified by uh, you, the pilots. Right. And it you know, gets back to my point I was making earlier about how this is a bottom-driven-up organization run by the individual pilots collectively. And so a contract, as you say, doesn't become a contract until the pilots say it's a contract. And we don't go on strike unless the pilots say we can go on strike. So that's, that's not a, a decision that's made by a few select leaders. It's made by the pilot group. And that's what this vote is about. Yeah, and I think it also just goes back to what we have to do at the table. So um, when we go meet with a company, we don't make things up. We don't have positions that don't reflect your priorities. We can't. Otherwise, you will make different decisions on how you're going to spend your days off. You know, you guys are going to do things differently than uh, what we're seeing right now with the huge turnout for the picket and things along those lines. Those all reflect your priorities, they demonstrate that what we say at the table reflects you. And again, that's uh, through the hard work that your elected representatives have done to make sure that they're accurately reflecting your priorities. Yeah, I think those are really good points. And we talked a lot about process, but let's maybe talk about experience because David, you and actually several members of this MEC have been through the experience of being on strike. And so maybe take just a couple of moments to offer some context about what that experience was like for everybody who's listening and who's you know staring into the future. Yeah, thanks, Will. I, it has been an interesting period for me because I, I'm seeing a lot of parallels and repeats about what I went through during that commerce strike. And, and, and let me start by saying this. I got hired at Alaska in October of 2002. So that was before the cash arbitration. So I lived through all of that. I've lived through multiple other negotiation periods. And through a lot of that, it's been rather negative between 
the pilots and management. And in all of those cases, I never ever felt like it was like Comair or that we were going to head down the same path that we did at Comair. But this time I do. And I remember, I don't know, eight months ago, maybe thinking, holy cow, here we are. I mean, in the as you said it earlier, in the company's own words, they're saying that we're at an impasse. And right. so where do you go from there? And, and equally troubling are all of these, you know, outside experts, whether or not it's people who support us, you know, providing us financial information, people who support us in the legal field, people who support us in communications, people who support us in um, polling and have been doing this literally for 20, 30, 40 years all starting to say that they see similar trends and circumstances and kind of the the same kind of a foundation building here, which is, it's alarming. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. And what happened then, and I think what happens at a lot of times when these labor contract negotiations become contentious and, and don't move forward, is it's not about the economics. It's about a philosophy or a principle that the parties can't get into an agreement with. And that was certainly the case at Comair. And when we were on strike, the company lost in revenue the full cost of all of the gains we were trying to achieve in that contract many times over. It was really clear that that it was not about pay. It was about power and control. For example, I mean, the to, to summarize, maybe crystallize what was going on there is there was a essentially a two-pilot pay structure in the airline industry at that time. Before the Comair strike and you know, in years before, a lot of folks may remember there was the A scale and the B scale pay. And so, you know, without going into a bunch of details, what that meant was pilots at the same property doing the same job, flying the same company, were doing it at two different pay rates. And that became, of course, very contentious for the pilots, but it was a windfall for the companies. They they got to do the same job and pay people less to do it. And those pay structures were phasing out around the time of the Comair strike, but what was phasing in was the exploitation of the what was called the regional airline industry. And so you had pilots like those of us working at Comair flying jet airplanes in the same airspace, in on the same routes, going to the same destinations as all of the majors, but at a drastically different pay rate, even when factoring in the aircraft size. So less pay, less work rules, less benefits, all of that. And so that's what we were trying to improve during our negotiation period. And that's what ultimately led to the strike because we were trying to hold the line at bridging the gap between the difference in in those that two-tiered pilot structure and of course management was holding the line trying to maintain that gravy train not just for them but for all of the the airlines so it really was a a battle line in the industry and so the parallels with Alaska Airlines at this point is that we're at this philosophical difference. It's power and control. What are we at an impasse? Again, using the company's words, what is that over? Well, it's over work rules and it's over job security. Right. Just things that are clearly in place at, at other carriers, but using very different methods of achieving the productivity that they seek, right? The productivity that they seek that we're trying to attain at the table does leave pilots in control. It's choice, it's power and control, but it incentivizes them and encourages them to work productively. That's a you know, philosophical 
issue and there may be trust issues that underlie the reason that they don't want to move forward. But again, proven principles at other airlines. And the idea is part of the reason that there's so much friction and so much misery right now in terms of like pilot morale is because they don't have power. They don't have control. Literally everything that affects their quality of life befalls to the management side of the equation to decide how hard they work or what kind of flexibility they have. And, you know, as we say on the job security front, what type of uh, fire insurance they have if something changes. We're in a very dynamic, obviously, M&A market right now, and you know, pilots have concerns. Right, right. And, you know, I, I think anyone who's studied history knows that those with power and control do not cede it willingly or easily. And that's, I think, the, the case that we're in today. Yeah. And David, didn't Comair actually thrive right after this thing? Yeah, it did. I mean, and that, yeah, word to the wise, right? Uh, for our management, Comair grew like gangbusters after the strike ended. So, you know, the idea that increasing the pilots' compensation or that giving them work rules that were more closely aligned with the industry would somehow hurt the company was proven to be false. It grew like crazy. And that's that's the foundation that we're trying to provide, too. I mean, the flip side is that we're concerned about the attrition. We're concerned about the fact that our attrition is nearly at half of what our training capacity is, right, on a monthly basis. These are things we want the company to thrive, and we think that we're providing a foundation so that new hires want to, to come here and want to invest their careers, right? Mm-hmm. And therefore, on the backside of this negotiating cycle, we expect the company to thrive because mm-hmm. they'll have a nice level offering compared to their peers to offer a prospective pilot. 10,000 plus pilots being hired this year alone, you can't compete with sub-market proposals. Yeah, that's right. I mean, after that strike, Comair was the place to be if, if you, certainly in that part of the industry. And even, you know, I remember saying goodbye to a captain that I had flown with when I got the job offer here at Alaska Airlines. And it, this really struck with me because he said, man, you're really rolling the dice to leave here now. And and what he meant was the the growth opportunities, it, it was a I mean, it was really becoming a career airline. And and so lots of people made the decision to stay there. And I think we have the potential at this company for the same thing. This could be a great place to work. This could have the culture that it professes to want, but some changes need to occur to make that happen. Right. And that's exactly what we're trying to capture in the proposals. As we've said so many times and that uh, Chris Gruner and I articulate here, it's problem solving. We're, we're literally taking a look at what are the friction points that the pilots say so clearly to us that need to be addressed so that this is a place that you want to invest a career in. It's it's real simple. We're trying to create that appeal so that when we're talking about 10,000 plus pilots out there being hired, that we are able to attract and retain. Yeah, that's right. And Ronan, I might have got a little off topic. I, I think maybe one of the things you're addressing is there's a narrative out there at Comair that, or about Comair, that we all know that it's no longer in business. And some people conflate the strike with that end result. And I, that's really not a fair comparison. One did not cause the other. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's what the point that I was getting at, because I was even when we were talking about it last week, when you said it was 11 years, because I remember both events very clearly, the strike because I was flying uh, a Delta Connection carrier at the time. And I remember when Comair went out of business and 
But I was I, I was even taken back when you said it was 11 years between the two events. So thanks for clearing that up for me. Yeah, you're welcome, Ronan. And I'll just reiterate that Comair did very well after the strike. And today, the proposals that we're seeking are found in other pilot contracts with companies who are themselves doing very well, growing and profitable. Yeah, David, one of the things that I note here as you're talking is that, you know, there's some parallels here, right? And some parallels that both companies had really good economics. And in both cases, both pilot groups, you know, we have very justifiable contract proposals. Some of the threats out there were in a very competitive pilot market. And every pilot, you know, at Comair who could fly an RJ had a job or, you know, would have one available to them. And as we've seen through the attrition that I've spoken to so many times, as we're losing, you know, four or five pilots a week, that that's the same environment we're operating in now. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I don't want to go on strike again, but the factors are in play now that give us more power to do so. It's, it's, you, you said it exactly right. We have justifiable contract proposals. The company can afford them. There is a hiring market for pilots and the company really should recognize that, but they're not. And so here we are. I, I mean, the, the one thing I would add to that as well, David, is it's a cultural thing. You know, we talk about culture and again, you know, I know Chris Gruner made a great comment with the, um, during the rally about the care campaign and hollow, hollow promises with that. But we want to work here. We, we want to make this a better place. I mean, Alaska airlines for years and years had was known to be a very, very good company to work at. Like this current attrition, which is through the roof, you know, we used to have an attrition on average of about 20 people a year and we're already over 60 and it's just April. And none of us wants this. None of us, we all want to work for a company that we're proud of. We want to work for a company that we feel valued at. And you look at, you know, the culture here and what has happened and how pilots feel. And you compare that and and even, you know, I'm going to say this and I haven't said this in a while, but the culture has been pretty much destroyed. And it's, it's especially for like those of us that came over from the former Virgin brand. You know, we built a company from nothing up. And then when, you know, they merged the companies, they, they very, you know, they were very um, forthcoming in saying that they wanted to merge two great cultures. Well, I can tell you six years later that that's definitely not where we are. You know, and I feel frankly devalued. You know, my time is devalued. My family's time is devalued. These work rules are draconian. You know, they're archaic and uh, they need to be addressed. To be told over and over again that, you know, this is the best they can do and I need to work at a discount. I just, I can't do this anymore. We can't do this anymore. We have to, we have to take these steps. And that was a great history lesson, David. And I, and I do draw a lot of parallels between the two companies because it's not economic. So any company that's reporting double digit profit, margins going forward, as they said in their um, investor relations calls last week, it's not an economic problem. It's a control and cultural issue. Right. And, you know, I think in some of my conversations with senior management over the years, uh, where it was lamented that the worst thing that could happen here at the airline would be to have a morale issue or a cultural uh, deterioration that was on par with what happened in the the post-casher decision. And we're there minus. And that's something that I have said time and time again 
to very senior management here that not only was that true, that's a true statement. We cannot really, you know, move forward with a, a culture and morale in a situation like post-casher, but we're already there minus. And those friction points that drive the morale and culture to where it is today are really about the power and control that we're talking about here. It's in the hands of scheduling when we have record, record reassignments happening every month to the point where nobody has any control over their life. If you're senior enough to go to Maui, you shouldn't end up running through Southeast, end up in Fairbanks. It's really hard to pack for that, right? But we're, and we're seeing you know record amounts of premium pay, just trying to do too much with too few resources. And that right there is the, the sandpaper on the pilot group that's led to the point where everybody is so, so raw these days. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I, you know, I lived through the cash arbitration and at least during that time, it was a downturn in the economy. So as and it was one of the, the judges said that that pay cut was draconian and it really was, but at least there was some context for it. And in fact, we all expected that we would have to tighten the belt to some degree, just not to that degree. And we started to come out of it. But today, it's, you know, we look around the industry, everyone else is growing. Everyone else has the contract provisions that we're trying to achieve. It's, it's, we are so out of step and out of time with our own peers throughout the industry. And that is what is killing the culture here, I think. People look around and go, what, what's wrong with us? We, we don't want to work this way. We shouldn't have to. We should be treated like everyone else. Well, yeah, and, and I've said that's not unique to pilots. As I always say, doctor, lawyer, educator, work in the trades. I don't care what you do for a living. Everybody wants to be on parity with their peers. And that's the, the most frustrating part here, I think, for the pilots at large and why we've seen such solidarity and such unity is because it's a recognition that it's not an overreach here. People are just looking for a catch-up. We're 10 years. As I've said on some of the media events, you know, our work rules are frozen in time. In many, many ways, we're 10 years overdue. You know, that's it's to jump on that, Will, I, I've said it before on a podcast. I'm going to say it again. I'm tired of being jealous. Tired of being jealous of my peers at other airlines and looking at them and just saying, man, I wish I, wish I had that sort of flexibility. I wish I had that sort of job protection. I'm just left hanging. And again, you know, I know I've said this already, but it's worth repeating again. How do you reconcile? You know, I, I literally do not understand how it is possible to reconcile when you're touting on Wall Street double-digit margins and how great the rest of the year is going to be, and then turn around, look over your shoulder at us, and say, "But I need you to, I need you to work at a discount." Right. You know, I can't give you what you want. You're going to bankrupt the company or you're going to put the company out of business. It's complete and utter rubbish. That's all it is. And don't get me rolling on, on talking points, Ron. And yes, you know, $3.5 billion in unrestricted cash, paying cash for Max is less, uh, you know, they emerged from the pandemic, less net debt than, than they started. $2.3 billion in taxpayer assistance. I mean, this isn't a matter of, uh, of capability. It's a matter of control. Absolutely. Correct. Power and control. Yeah, I appreciate the the history, and I think you know we'll try to continue to thread narratives in from people who've been through the experience of self help, David, and it parallels too. You touched on a number of things that we're looking at historically, right? This pilot group has been through a lot, right? You mentioned the cash arbitration, 
the furloughs, which is what brought me to union work. We've been through a merger, obviously, and SLI. And, you know, most frustratingly, we're still here after three years of bargaining, despite getting this company, as I said, through COVID and demonstrating amazing professionalism and flexibility when the company has had a need or adversity has stared us in the face. But, you know, unfortunately, we do continue to be challenged to secure the contract that we've earned through all of this. That kind of threads into the runway behind us, right? And then what I always talk about the runway ahead of us and the calendar ahead of us is, you know, what does the pilot got to do next? What are our next steps? Other than what we're talking about, the mechanics of the strike authorization vote. And overarchingly, it's always remain focused on professionalism and safety, with safety coming first. Stay informed. This is not a time to let somebody else do that for you. Attend events that Ronan talked about. Again, that's not someone else's job. This is your job. And as Ronan said so articulately too, this is a family process at this point. Make sure that your spouses are up to speed. Make sure they're informed and that they're comfortable with where we are. And candidly, too, when we start talking about the prospects of self-help, it's also time to make sure that you've got finances shored up for that possibility. We did talk about keeping the narrative straight when you talk to family and friends, because there's going to be obviously a counter narrative put out there. And I've already seen it in my, my media events and things like that, that the companies reached out and started to thread their counter narrative into uh, in, you know, into the public and into discussion. And we have to prepare for what the company will do and we 100% expect a few things. And you know, David, this is something that you did as you managed uh, communications through a handful of um, negotiations. So maybe I'll let you speak to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this we're moving into the next phase, so is management. So you need to be ready and expect some of the actions that they'll take. And one, I would say, expect the company to start actively and even maybe aggressively engaging with you directly. They'll sound like they're on your side. They're just trying to move the process forward. They'll, they'll act like they want help from you to inform them of, of where you want things to go. I would expect management to provide lots of new opportunities for you to share their views with them, like the base chief pilots will be more available in their office, maybe even hanging out in the crew lounges. You could expect to see food offered to you to just come by. and Free and, food instead of Play-Doh and payday candy bars. Exactly. Yeah. And bubbles. Yes. More rapid Ds, for example. And I'm not going to tell anyone what to do, but I, I will just say this. Remember... If management really cared about what you think, they would have asked you a long time ago. And more to the point, they would have acted on that. So the fact that your goals have been communicated to them for the last three years and we are where we are should be an indication of how effective any further communication will be with management. Am I am I wrong about that, Will or Ronan? No. Uh, you know, David, after been through an organization drive um, with Virgin America, you are literally calling every play. You'll see, you'll possibly even see letters come from people as to why this isn't the path to go. You are 100% correct with the, uh, the free food and coffees and you'll see all of these things start to pop back up that they want to hear from you, et cetera, et cetera. This is all a tired playbook and we know exactly what's going to happen. You know, we've been meeting with you guys through coffee sits 
all throughout this process and not just during a, a gate event is what I would call this. So, you know, I, 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 you call it. This is exactly what they're going to do. Yeah, and they'll very likely construe it as, as ALPA as the problem why we aren't moving forward and that, that we are stuck on things that the pilots don't really care about. And a famous one that they said during the Comair strike was, we are held up over things that won't put money in your pocket. And I don't know if that'll be the case here, but it's, I, I bring it up because it, it just shows that the way that managements typically will construe things is the union is keeping an agreement from reaching you because of, of nuanced things that don't really matter. And in our case, in those days, it was work rules, you know, better quality of life that, that was the holdup. And yeah, true, that may not be extra money, but it wasn't pay that this was about. It was about being able to spend time at home with our families, having some flexibility in our scheduling. And, you know, again, back to those parallels, that's that's what we're facing here. Yeah. And if any pilot out there thinks that the only thing that we're standing between the pilots and the company on is their current proposal that they put out, somehow I think that we're on safe ground based on the feedback we've gotten from the pilots. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, make no mistake. We are here where we are now with this strike ballot authorization in front of us because three years after negotiations started, management still hasn't moved towards the pilot's goals. And if we are forced to strike for a new contract, it will only be because management left us no choice. Yeah, it's an unfortunate truth. Couldn't have said it better. All right. Well, Will, I'll throw it back to you in a minute to close us out like we usually do. But before I do that, Ronan, what am I forgetting? Is there anything else you want to impart before we, we close out this episode? Thanks, David. It's it's. Um, I'll tell you, the one thing I've, I've found with, with doing this work and trying to get people to pull in the same direction is when you put pilots in the room, you know, they start to realize very quickly they have a lot more in common than they do apart. So it's it's really critical that people keep moving. You know, this is, as I said, this is a step towards getting us the contract that we deserve. And that's exactly what it is. But the one thing that everybody can do is 100, 100%, 100% participation and 100% yes vote. That's, that's the statement that we as a pilot group have got to make now. And the time is now. It, it, we're just, we're there. You know, it's unfortunate, as I said, that we're there, but we are. But we are determined. We will keep pushing and we will get this thing across the line. So, but thanks, David. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great way to put it. 100-100. All right. Well, Will, as we often do, why don't you close us out? I think I would start, since we've kind of gone back to the picket a couple of times, by noting that I was genuinely touched at that picket, you know, as I stood up there on stage by the, the solidarity that I saw in that room by the resolve, by the unity. But in that room, I, I saw not just solidarity, but in conversations, I, I mean, I also actively saw frustration. I mean, I know that this pilot group is tired. As we've said uh, earlier, we have record reassignments underfoot since the attrition picked up and since staffing became such an issue. As we've noted on previous podcasts, calls questioning your sick leave usage during a pandemic or just conversations that indicate just flat out disrespect for the job that you do and fatigue data and trends that are alarming. I know 
that everybody is worn out. And for them against that backdrop to demonstrate that solidarity was a very touching moment. And I think that the picket demonstrates not just how much they appreciate the work of volunteers, you know, like Ronan, but also how badly they want to send a message to management. And that's what we're talking about here to bring it full circle. This is a somber but very important step as as we move forward to secure that contract with our peers. And maybe just close by saying that I'm always so proud of this pilot group, the professionalism and humbled by that display of solidarity that they've given and given this MEC. Uh, but I'll note that you know things that are worth it are worth fighting for. And I'm really proud of what we've done so far in this fight and that I'm confident in this pilot group for that path that lies ahead. Thank you, Will. You've been listening to another episode of the Alaska Pilots Podcast. I've been your host, Strategic Communications Chairman, David Campbell.